0: I'll be reading 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. This will be an easy one to preach. (laughs) You know the numbers... uh, regarding marriage and the increased percentages of marriages now, people getting married and divorcing, um, you know, the increased number of people that choosing to not get married, but live together. And, and yet over and over, you still see people getting married. They, they keep getting married. People keep wanting to yoke together in in marriage. And it, it, the, the irony is it shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, God said it is not good for man to be alone. People keep wanting to get married. We're drawn together. And um, as Christians viewing marriage, we see this as a primary place of displaying the gospel, of showing the greatness and the glory of God through marriage. Um, but we have confusion over its structure. We're not sure how it's to be. How are our marriages to be set up? And so I'm thankful for this passage, even though it's difficult to preach, I'm thankful for its instructive power for us. And so before I go to explain this passage, I, I just want to set the context of where we are in this book. If you remember First Peter, he starts out his whole letter calling us aliens and strangers. That's what he says we are. You're not citizens of this world. You're actually an alien to this world, that your status has changed. And his, your status has changed because of God's great mercy, that he's caused you to be born again to a living hope. He's caused you to this living hope. He's, he's given you a life that transcends death. This, this life, uh, it's a new life. He's even given us new names, right? In chapter 2, verse 9, you're a, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You're, you're different and distinct from the world around you. And yet we don't retreat in fear. What we do is we live honorably. We live powerfully so that when people see our lives, they may glorify God. That's the point in Peter. When he pivots in his book, you know, in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. That's our lives now. Peter's saying, okay, let me tell you how you're going to live in such a way that it will be honorable and transforming. And so he begins to explain in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, here's how you behave with the government in 18 to 25. Here's how you behave in relationships, both in the workplace and in the extended community. And now we get to chapter 3, and he says, and here's how you behave as Christians within marriage. He's going to begin with the ladies. Ladies, he's going to instruct you in terms of how you begin or how you live as a Christian pilgrim, as a Christian wife, within marriage. And I want to just highlight three aspects of these six verses. Uh, number one would be that these Christian wives are to conduct themselves with all godliness. And I'll show you that that has power. So Christian wives, conduct yourselves with all godliness. That's in one and two. In, in three and four, Christian wives are to pursue inward adornment, that, that beauty of the inner person. And he says that's precious in God's sight. God values that as precious, and then Christian wives are to put their hope in God, and it's going to, it's going to cultivate a fearlessness in you, regarding regardless of what circumstances come. And I think this applies directly, actually, to singles. And so I'll have a word towards the end of the sermon on that. I think, although it all, as you're going to find, kind of applies. So, so the, the the first point is that Christian. Wives are to conduct themselves in all godliness. Don't miss how this whole passage begins. Likewise, wives. Do you notice Peter addressing a letter to women? Many of the women couldn't even read. He's giving them an honor. He's giving them dignity. He is speaking directly to them. And he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure conduct. Now, I know at this point, the culture will groan, groan over this idea of wives being subject to husbands. And sadly, uh, many Christian husbands have been harsh and insensitive. They have failed to lead with sacrifice and love. And so you've only fueled the critics, that's all. It, it, ask yourself this, is it not true that if, if Christian husbands across the board, if they led with a gentle strength, a sacrificial love, they led in humility, laying down their lives, would people groan over this text to the same degree? I don't think they would. I think they'd see it as, wow, that's a harmonious relationship, both laying down and serving one another. But it's not that way. And you know, Peter would, Peter knew that, but he still calls Christian wives to conduct themselves in all godliness. And you see the three words In these verses here, uh, a submission, respectful, and pure conduct. Let me take the last two first, because I I think they're easiest. Uh, So respectful, that that a Christian wife is to be respectful. Now, that word, that Greek word means fear. And each time, Peter has used it leading up to this, it is not a fear of the husband. The Christian wife is not to fear the husband. We see that in verse 6, where he says, don't fear anything, even those things that are frightening. The wife is not to fear the husband. He's talking about a fear of God, that, that all godliness flows out of a right understanding of the greatness of God. So if you understand God and you have a reverential fear of him, then godliness is going to flow out of you. And, and you kind of see this pictured in the, um, in the miracle at the sea so when the disciples and Jesus were crossing the Sea of Galilee, these were fishermen, these were experienced sailors. A big wind whip up, whips up, and they get scared. Now, listen, sailors need wind. Without wind, it's a long, hot day. So wind's not a bad thing. But this was a great wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat. So they wake up Jesus. Now, they're in fear. But then they wake up Jesus. And Jesus steps up, and he, he says, Peace be still, and creation always responds to its creator. It calms down immediately. It didn't die down. The winds didn't slow down. They stopped. And then the text says they feared a great fear. That in Greek it's emphasized. They had more fear now that the sea was calm than they did when the sea was rough. Why? Because they had someone in their boat that they couldn't understand. Power unimaginable. And so for Christian wives, for you to walk in fear, it's to fear God, a reverential fear. And out of that, will come godliness, but not just fear in God rightly, not frightened by God, but reverential fear over his character. There is purity, and that word purity has the idea of honesty, integrity, Uh, that the Christian wife is to live her life with a faithfulness and a trustworthiness, where where she's not duplicitous, where the husband's not uncertain about what she's really saying by what she's saying, that it's not a, a superficial legalistic or or religiosity but there's a true depth of holiness with her you know this has an impact on husbands and even unbelievers but then he speaks about wives being subject this is the third kind of descriptive word what's it mean to be subject or submission this is where it gets a little delicate so submission I would I would give you a word to help understand it Uh, yield that you're yielding to your husband you're giving way to the leadership provided for by the husband. Now, because sometimes it's easier to define things by what they're not than what they are. Let me try to do that. Let me try to define what it's not. When I talk about submission here, I don't think he means. Uh, I don't think he means inferiority or demeaning. That it's demeaning for a woman. Some some do. It's demeaning for a woman to submit. I don't think it means that. And the reason I say that is because Jesus Christ submitted to the Father. right? Jesus followed the Father's will. He submitted to his will in every way. And then when he was raised to the Father at the right hand, he sent the Spirit. And the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. So the Trinity is actually pictured for us perfectly in the marital union when there is submission and equality. I I know Peter didn't mean equality, or I know he didn't mean inferiority by it, because in verse 7, we'll look at this next week, he says that the wife is the weaker vessel, but she is a co-heir of the grace of life. Now, I'll explain what it means about the weaker vessel uh, next week. So if you do come back after hearing this talk on submission, uh, I may drive you out on the second week, and then we can go back to one service. But... The, the reality is that it doesn't mean inferiority, there's that yielding. Submission also doesn't mean that you don't have independent thought. Submission doesn't mean that you can't disagree. Submission doesn't mean that your husband makes every decision perfectly. Submission doesn't mean that you draw spiritual strength from your husband. Submission is actually very hard to define what it is from me to you and your relationship. In fact, I would encourage you to speak with your spouse about what does submission look like given the different situations that you may find yourself in. You know, mutually humble yourselves. Seek to discern what does it look like. Because if a couple comes to me uh, and says, what does it mean to be submissive? That's a good question. What's it mean for the woman to be submissive? But then I'd ask the husband, what's it mean for you to sacrifice for your wife? I, I mean, they're both operational. You know, for, for Carol and I, it, it may vary. It may depend. It, it may be me laying down my rights for her. Or it may be her bending to go in the direction that I feel God may be leading us in. So, so it, it's a very variable thing. It, it's a difficult thing to do. But God is driving you together. So you'll discuss these things. And again, you seek the counsel of Christian friends or church leaders. Say, can you help us process what submission looks like in this case? Or what properly leader, you know, what? Because in, in chapter three, verse seven, we're going to look at next week. He calls the men, treat your wives in an understanding way. So the man is to try to be understanding his wife. So his leadership is driven by his understanding of her and her specific needs. So it's not so simple that the husband just comes up and makes the decision. That's a caricature of what Peter is saying here. Now, I will say this. One thing submission definitely does not mean is to endure abuse. Now, abuse is broader than just physical abuse. But but in no way, now listen, it is both sad and it's incredible that the percentage of abuse in evangelical homes is 300% higher than the abuse in non-evangelical homes. It's it's incredibly sad to me. If there is abuse in your home and it's at a rate, you call the police and you call the church leadership. I, I mean it is something we don't want ever anybody thinking that pure submission means that you endure that. So that's not what we're preaching here. We're preaching here that godly conduct, godly conduct, rightful submission. Uh Will, will have power. And that's what you see in the first verse. Why is he asking Christian wives to do this? Well, he tells you. Look halfway down, verse 1. You see that so that clause. It's a purpose clause. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. In other words, conduct, godly conduct, has, it, it makes an impression on husbands and on husbands who are not Christians. When he talks about these men who do not obey the word, even if some do not obey the word, remember what happens. The church went out in the first couple of centuries. And usually, as you know, in most church bodies, if you look in their membership, it usually, the majority is women. Women were coming to faith first. And they were being drawn, they were married, they came to faith the husband had a different, he followed his pagan religion. She now has a new religion. Husbands were very antagonistic, often very domineering over their wives. And so what, what Peter's saying is, by your godly conduct, even some of them may be one to the faith. They may see the gospel. They may see the glory of the gospel without a word. Now, he's not saying don't preach. He's not saying to the wife, don't share the gospel. We know that you have to share the gospel to come to faith, right? Because in 1 Peter 1, he says that, um, that we've been born again through the imperishable seed of the word. And he says, the gospel that was preached to you. So you have to preach the gospel. He says the same thing in 3.15. Always be prepared to make a defense for the hope that's within you. So ladies, Christian wives, you're called to preach the gospel. But once you've shared the gospel, once he understands the gospel, you don't have to keep pounding it like a hammer. You don't have to keep driving it in. That tends to harden the soul. What Peter's saying is, once you've preached the gospel, now live the gospel, display the gospel, adorn the gospel by right behavior. You legitimize the gospel as your life is showing it, as it's revealing it. That's the encouragement. Now, he's not promising conversion when you do this, but he's giving you a great encouragement. And and we see that because of the word likewise. If you see that, likewise wives be subject. Now, that does draw your mind back to 2.18 and 2.13 where he calls for submission in different contexts. But I think it also draws your mind just to the verses right preceding our passage. Look at 21 to 24 again. Do you remember last week, Peter draws out of Isaiah 53, this theology of suffering from from Isaiah 53, and he's showing us how to suffer by looking to Christ? And I think he's saying to the wives here, because Jesus suffered injustice, and he entrusted himself to God, thereby displaying the gospel. And he's holding women up, these Christian wives, and he's saying, when you endure injustice or hardship, or maybe the husband is a difficult person, and you endure that, thinking upon Christ, entrusting yourself to God, you're displaying the gospel. Christian wives become like little Christs, revealing Christ to them, revealing the gospel to them. In in fact, it kind of goes along with, people want to ask me, well, why are there six verses for the women and one for the man? It's not because guys are a little thicker of skull, but what it's showing is that he's holding up the women to be an exemplary model of what suffering, injustice, and vulnerability is to the churches that he was writing to Bithynia, and Pontus, and Galatia, and Cappadocia. He's holding up Christian wives, saying to the churches in Asia Minor, this is an example of what it means to be faithful under difficulty. It, it's, a real, it, it's a real lifting up of the value of women, Christian wives. So ladies, the first thing is, Christian wives, conduct yourselves in godliness because it has great power in the sight of men. Let me give you an example, Many of you don't know this because it happened a number of years ago. I shared it at the man's funeral, but I did not. Most of you, I don't think, know the story. So there's a a woman in the church here. I had called her up last night. She gave me the green light to share it and even share that it was her, Susan Schalabarger. Her husband died a number of years ago, Spence. And uh, he started coming back. He started coming to this church for carol help at the 830 service. I um, didn't have all the details perfect, so I received a little help from my bride. Uh, so you'll get the true story. Uh, but he started coming to church a little bit, a little bit interested in the gospel. We met a number of times, discussed the gospel. Uh, they weren't always the nicest meetings. They were kind of spicy, if you know what I mean. Like he left a few of the meetings and I remember saying to one of the staff, I don't know if I'm going to see him again. Uh, but it was a good heart. He was a frank man, clear minded and had some clear thoughts on what he had and I, as I did. And, and then he, ca- he had cancer, contracted cancer, and it was fast, and it was a high stage, and it was quickly apparent he did not have uh, long to live. And so we continued to discuss uh, this, the nature of the gospel as it relates to him. And I shared the gospel, called him to faith, and of course, uh, he was not ambivalent, he was maybe a little antagonistic a little bit. And uh, so we had some discussions, and then it kind of faded off for a while, and we didn't have any more discussions. Carol and I went away for, I think, a week on vacation. I came back, and, and he called me, and he said, Can you come over? I came over, and uh, uh, Susan was there, and I was there, and he was in his bed, and he told me. She did not know. I did neither. He said, I've confessed my sins to God. I've, I've placed my faith in Christ. And it was, it was pretty, it blew her away, blew me away, and so I started asking questions to make sure he understood the gospel. And as he was answering them, I, you know, I was trying to get to so what what moved you, what what moved you to, to change, and repent. And he looked at his wife and he says, "I've been watching you. I've watched your life all these years. I've watched you." I mean, it, it was it was a moment. And, and then he said to me, he said, "Why did I wait so long?" And uh, I said, I don't know why. I said, but but I know God has given you grace in this woman. And now God is giving her grace in your conversion. But it was her life. And he testified to that. And she had never heard that. So Christian wives, your godliness has a power. It has a great power to influence, to direct, to see a, a godly woman has great converting power. So be encouraged. Perhaps you've gotten tired, you've tried, it hasn't been effective, your husband hasn't changed. Let me encourage you to press forward. Maybe you need to repent, you've given up. Or maybe you need to go to your husband and ask for forgiveness and say, you know what, I haven't walked in a manner worthy of the gospel. Consider doing that. Consider clearing the decks and reconciling. But your conduct, your godly conduct, has great power. The second thing you see in the text here in 3 and 4 is that he's saying, Christian wives, let your adornment be primarily internal, that inward person. Now, notice what he says. Don't let your adorning be external, braiding of hair, putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Now, you know, in the Greco-Roman world, clothing and hair and fashion was just as much on the minds of women as it is now. I mean a bad hair day it 's not a modern thing. It was back then. in fact, when you read some of the ethicists, the, the moralists, the Greek moralists, they would often they would often write and castigate women who spent all this time and money building these hairstyles that were like small little pyramids or or they 'd wear these flashy gold kind of banglay I, I think it 's called bling now, but, but they had it then they had it then or or their dress was sophisticated or provocative and uh and and they would write against them and these women they were being castigated say hey stop drawing attention to yourself or your sophistication or your wealth or your sexuality so, so ladies today it's the same issue I, I i know that there's great pressure on you to adorn yourselves in the sense of you have to be thin enough you have to be pretty enough you have to wear the newest fashion enough and and as you begin chasing that carrot on a stick, you're, you're never thin enough, and you're never pretty enough, and you're never fancy enough, and you're never current enough. Uh, whenever Carol goes to the mall, I always ask her, well, enjoy the house of Horrors," because the mall is just proclaiming what you're not, and what you don't have. And it's always telling you things that you need to have to somehow get better. It, it, it's a lot of pressure. It's a tremendous amount of pressure. What he's not saying is that you shouldn't braid your hair and you shouldn't put on gold jewelry. Uh, And the reason I say that, that's a simplistic reading of the text. Because if that's the case and you want to be consistent, you can't braid your hair because a lot of women leave their hair straight. They don't wear any jewelry. Well, then if you want to be consistent, you shouldn't wear any clothes. I mean, if you're going to be consistent with the interpretation of the passage, we know he doesn't mean that. Why? Well, because you see the parable of the prodigal where the father comes out to the son who repents before him, and what's he do? He says this. He says, put a ring on his finger. He has jewelry. Put the best robe on him. He's got fancy clothes. So he's not saying, don't prepare yourself. Don't attend to your external adornment. It's a matter of emphasis. If your primary concern, time, and money is invested in that which is perishable, he's saying there's a foolishness to that. But if it's invested in the internal person of the heart, that's beautiful in God's sight. And and what does he mean by that? What's he mean by the hidden person of the heart with this imperishable beauty? What's beautiful to God? Well, he tells us a gentle and quiet spirit. It's a gentle spirit. Now, ladies, Christian wives, do not think this is man, people here, I've got to be gentle and quiet, I can't say anything. That's a false read of the text. The word quiet, the Greek word for quiet means strength under control. I, I hate this analogy, but, but it's, it's like a war horse. You know, it, it's, it's strong, you can see the muscles flexing as it marches through, but it's under control. It, it, you know, A woman can be very strong. But, but she's strong in God, her identity is in God, so, so she can yield, she can lay down her rights, she, she can move beyond what she asserts is true, and, and she can yield. That's a strength. The person that's weak has to have their way. They have to have it their way. The person that's strong can back up and allow it to go another way. So, so strength, or this gentleness, and then quiet. Being quiet is not being silent. It means to be calm. And a confident woman is a calm woman. She doesn't rattle and get anxious, but she's calm because she's trusting in God. So when he details this woman in internal or inward adornment is to be gentle and quiet, these aren't strictly feminine qualities. These are used of Jesus Christ. He's really holding it contrary to like a cantankerous spirit, a grumblesome soul a person that has to have their ways. So this woman can be bold, she can be assertive, she can be intelligent, she can be persuasive, she can be articulate, and still be quiet and gentle. Because there's a yieldedness to her, there's a strength under control. So ladies, if you were to look at your lives, Christian wives, if you were to look at your your lives in the kind of analogy of using scales, uh, the effort, the time that you put in on external adornment versus the cultivation of a, of a quiet and gentle spirit resting in God, what, which way would the scale go? Now, I know that I'm getting on some deep waters here as I move into this area about external adornment and how much you should do. I learned this quickly. It was a few years after marriage. Uh, Carol uh, was going out, and I said, where are you going? And She goes, I'm going to go get my hair colored. And I said, I thought you just went, uh, I think about a month ago. And uh, she goes, Well, I did. I got my hair cut then. And I said, You got your hair cut, you get hair colored. I I said, Why don't they do it like a two for one thing? You know, like she buys Minder, where you get two pair, you get one free. I said, Can't they do it with hair? And uh, that's when she just did this. She just goes, (sighs) I didn't catch the clue when she gave it to me. Because I then went scientific on her. I said, you know, hair is dead. It's, dead. it's not alive. So you don't want to invest a lot of money in it. And, and, and that's when she just went like this, which most guys will know, that means the gloves are off, and I'm in deep water. And I just remember thinking, I just remember saying, you really look good. When she came back, her hair looked Fantastic. We, and we have not had many discussions on hair after that. But I, 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 I get the adornment issue. Uh, ladies, it's a balance issue. And you see this in Paul when he writes to Timothy in 1 Tim. He says, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, there is a responsibility. It is good to take care of our bodies. He says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So ladies, ask yourself, how much pressure are you under to be outwardly beautiful versus the efforts that you put toward being inwardly beautiful for God? Because he says this is precious in his sight. The quiet and gentle spirit, the godly woman, God looks on that and says it's precious. In other words, it is like jewels to God. Now, the world doesn't rate it that way. I totally get it. But but God's going to rate it that way. Now, I, I would say, moving to husbands for a minute, how often do you speak to this being the type of beauty that you enjoy? How often do you give a word of encouragement to your wife that doesn't have to do with physicality or their bodies or their dress? Uh, how often do you speak to your wife about, about the character she has, the godliness she walks with, the honesty she has, her trustworthiness, her holiness, or her quietness, her yieldedness. Do you give word? Man, I'd encourage you, if you haven't, then repent to her and, and speak and say, these are the things I see in you, marks of God's grace that have made our home lovely and have made you a beautiful woman. And and fathers, with your children, are you cultivating in your daughters this is what beauty is? Because all of our daughters are going into a culture that has high demands on what beauty is. And there are so many young women under such great pressure to have clothing, hair, and a body. Many of the things they can't control about their body. And they're subjected to the world's standard, and they come up short. And they're always living this life of less than. And it's up to us. This is what beauty is. This is what beauty is. And this is what beauty is to me. And, and fathers, training your young boys, uh, this is what beauty is. So, so when, when young single men talk about women, about how beautiful they are, what are the first three attributes that come up? Those are the things that they esteem. And a lot of times they're not inward, they're outward. And so I want to challenge us in this, particularly as men. We're creating a culture that is putting pressure that is crushing to women. Okay, so that's the second. Look at the third one with me in five and six. Christian wives, they root their hope in God. They root their hope in God. And this leads to a fearlessness. Look what he says here. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything. And notice that Peter is trying to encourage the women, uh, the Christian wives, to look at Sarah. Now, if you don't know who Sarah is, she's the wife of Abraham. If you don't know who Abraham is, he's a key guy in Genesis 12 that God speaks to and gives a promise. And he says, that you will have a son, and through your son, all the nations will be blessed. Now, later on, we understand in growing measure how this son will be the Messiah. He's going to be the one that redeems the world. He's going to be the one that saves us from the brokenness of the world. Now, he has given this promise, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait, right? And no son. They're getting older and older and older. Now he's well into his late, 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 late 90s. She is not far behind him. And so God comes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son this time next year. And Sarah hears it, and she laughs. Well, it is kind of funny. I, I mean, he's 99. He can't have him. She's, 99, or she's just a little bit less, and she's past her cycle. She can't have him either. So, I mean, it's a pretty funny thing about, well, I don't know how it's going to work because not, nothing's working that's supposed to work to have a child. And here's what happened. She laughed at God. But they both, in her calling him Lord, she obeyed him. In other words, they by faith came together and had a moment of intimacy. By faith, because there was nothing there that gave warrant to have it, if you know what I mean. And by faith, they came together and they conceived. And this is what Hebrews brings up. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith, Sarah received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. In other words, they came together believing, God, you have to do it, because we know we're beyond that point. And so by faith, they put their hope in God. And so Peter is using her for you Christian wives. Put your hope in God. If you're children of Sarah, then then do good. Even though your husband may be difficult and harsh, Do good, and don't fear anything that's frightening, which is kind of an oxymoron. If it's frightening, it's natural to fear. But he's saying, put your hope in God. You can look at that which is frightening and not be in fear. So Christian wives, I don't know where you are in your marriages. Some of you, I know, uh, struggle with perhaps husbands that are very passive. Uh, They're very passive. You're always having to kind of start the engine in life. And... And that's difficult. What does it look like? Or or some of you may have harsh or maybe narcissistic or inconsiderate husbands that only think of themselves. And you say, well, if I don't think of myself, who's going to take care of me? He's saying, put your, anchor your hope in this God. Anchor your hope in this God that can take a couple that could not have children, and boom, she is no longer barren, she has a child. God can do anything. His invincible, absolute sovereignty is something that you can anchor your hope into, even in the face of uncertain circumstances. You know, the writer of Proverbs speaks about the woman in chapter 31, and he says this about her. He says, she has clothed herself with dignity and holiness, and she can look at the days ahead and laugh. In other words, she doesn't fear what's uncertain, because she has her hope square. Her strength and dignity are in God. And so, ladies, it's a call to put your hope in God. I don't know where your marriages are, but, but appealing to God like David in Psalm 62, he says, My soul waits in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest, the rock of my strength. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. Oh, Oh, ladies, oh, Christian wives, he could say, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So you turn to this. When when you're confronted with a marital situation, you don't know what to do, you open up the Bobby. You go to Psalm 62, you remind yourself, I don't put my hope in my husband. I don't put my hope in a husband-to-be. I put my hope squarely in God. That's what he's calling us to do, calling you to do. So, ladies, three things in the passage that you're called to, Conduct yourself in all godliness that you are called to pursue an inward adornment and that you are called to put your hope in God, leading to a a fearlessness. Now, ladies, if you're at a point here where you're kind of coming up short, this is where the Christian wife can run to God and say, you know what? I failed. I failed this. The gospel is sufficient for you. You confess your sins. You know that he's faithful and he's just and just, and he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't leave the sanctuary bearing the burden of not having done these things. Thank God that you've heard them. Thank God that you can appeal to Christ to be washed. Thank God that you can walk out of here in the hope that is promised to you. And if you're, if you're not a Christian woman, these things are impossible. And, and I, would just, I would ask you to consider the offer of the gospel if you've never come to a place of saying, I am absolutely without hope, that, that, that I, I, I do need God, I, I do need his forgiveness, I do need to be reconciled, then speak with a church member next to you or, or come up front and speak to us. I don't want you to leave here feeling like I don't know what to do. How do I get reconciled to God? If, if you feel convicted, then we will stay, we will wait. S- someone in this church will be able to talk to you about the power of the gospel. Uh, But let me just say a few more things, though, for for those who are single. Uh, You know, particularly for the single woman, you know, this is still a model for you. I mean, the idea of conducting yourself in godliness, the idea of pursuing an inward purity, particularly for the single woman that will often be tempted to think her appearance is going to lead to uh, becoming married. I, I would encourage you to pursue the inward adornment first. I would encourage you to take your singleness and put your hope in God, not in a man, um, I think it's, it's, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, and, and God will, if God does bring you a husband, then you're already walking out as you should. But if, if, if you remain single, a, a single woman focused on God, putting her hope in God, that's, th- that is an object of beauty. That has power. One without a word. Your witness as a single woman faithfully walking out the gospel, that'll display the gospel. It'll have effect on people. You cannot help but be affected by some person that has a deep trust in the power of God. And then I'd say to those who are single, both the men and the women, when you read a passage like this, let this drive out of your mind some fairy tale understanding of what marriage is to be. I mean, what marriage is, is it's a challenge. Because two selfish people are coming together who want what they want when they want it, and they have to try to make life work out as one, and that is not an easy thing and, and so let this drive out the fairy tale understanding and, and let it be a word to the wise that if you 're in a relationship you 're pursuing marriage or you hope to one day you know be warned you know don't if you move into a relationship and you're connecting at a physical and an emotional level before you do spiritual you're in, you're in you're in deep waters. I mean, it's like, trying to, it's like trying to start a diet when you just get a job at a bakery. It is not the time to do it. Your mind is not in it. You need to consult your parents if you're still at home. You need to draw Christian friends in. Is this a godly relationship? Do you see a godliness in this man or in this woman? You have to draw other people in because your heart begins to move and it's like blinders come over you. And uh, you begin to, what you do is, You begin to evangelistically date. Well, he's going to come around. It it really doesn't work that way, except in rare occasions and exceptions, and they should not become the rule. And then the last thing I would say to the single is, is um, serve marriages. I I mean, if you're single and you're less distracted, you have more time, then offer to babysit for couples that you know. Or embed your life in their life and find out what marriage is like. Encourage them in the grace that you see in their marriage. Be vocal about it. How is marriage? What is it? What's been a struggle? What's been a, a point of glory for you? You know, find out these things before you get married. So, so, we have a beautiful passage here. Next week, ladies, it's all men. Uh, but, but right now, I, I encourage you just to go through this. And if you are married, to talk about it with your spouse. You know, where do you see godliness in your wife, men? Promote that, give word to that. Where do you see the inward beauty in them? Speak to that. And where do you see them hoping in God? And encourage that. Well, let's take a minute now and, and just perhaps it's a point of confession for you or perhaps it's a point of thanksgiving. And then in just a, a few moments, uh, I will close us in prayer.